inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 2 Kings chapter 4. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it in his lap full of wild uh, gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pots. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we believe that all of your word is given to us by your spirit for our teaching and instruction and our sanctification. Help us to see that in this text. Open our entire being that we may become more like Jesus because we've encountered the God of Scripture. May I decrease so you can increase. Name me so we pray. Amen. Seated. Well, if you had a guess, a bit of a morbid question, but if you had a guess, what do you think is the biggest killer of presidents of the United States? Hopefully it's not something you think about much. If you do, Secret Service will come visit you soon. But what do you think is, is the thing that has killed the most presidents? Uh, I don't know for sure the answer to that question, but can I propose uh, an option for you to consider? Food. Food has killed many of our presidents. On July 4th, 1850, President Zachary Taylor uh, dedicated the Washington Monument. Overheated, he returned to the White House and drank some milk and ate a large bowl of cherries. That evening, he retired to his bedroom complaining of not feeling well. He would be dead in a few short days. So sudden and shocking was his death, and because there was controversy around some of his leadership decisions and policy decisions, that many assumed, and the rumor began to spread, that the President of the United States had been poisoned. And this story continued for over a hundred years. It was not until 1991 an historian convinced his descendants. By the way, Zachary Taylor died in 1850. He has a living grandson right now. A few years ago, he had two. He, has, he still has a grandson. Zachary Taylor is buried in Louisville, by the way. A fact I just learned this week. And I lived in Louisville for five years and did not, did not know that. What were we talking about? Well, in 1991, uh, they exhumed his body and did a test and discovered, no, he hadn't been poisoned. But what they did conclude was uh, he probably died of cholera or some version of salmonella, which likely occurred from something he ate. We could add to this list other presidents who have died of some sort of food poisoning. James K. Polk, who was Taylor's predecessor, died of cholera a few weeks after leaving the White House. Thomas Jefferson died of amoebic dysentery. James Monroe and Andrew Jackson likely died of tuberculosis, which can be transmitted either through the air or through food. And I'm sure there are other examples that we could give. But it is kind of scary now. I hope you've already had dinner because um, you're not going to eat it uh, tonight. Uh, but it is something to think about. Just 
how quickly and easily we can, everything can just be seem, seem normal, but, but what we think is a perfectly healthy food source can be a source of real sickness to us. Uh, I remember when my wife and I were dating, we traveled to South Carolina to see uh, her brother-in-law. They lived over there. And uh, my sister-in-law worked at a place called Sticky Fingers. It's perfect Southern delicacy. And I had already not felt very good, uh, but I went ahead and had like a salad or something there. And I got the 24-hour stomach bug. I was miserable. And to this day, my sister-in-law will say, um, where would you like to eat? Don't worry, we won't take it. The Sticky Fingers. And after I explain, I don't know what caused it. I don't think it was sticky fingers, but I doubt it helped. It is amazing that, that you can be perfectly healthy in a matter of a single meal or a few bites. Suddenly, you become very sick, even deathly ill. That's basically what the story that we have here. We, 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 it is a story about food poisoning. And you read it like, what in the world does that have to do with my spiritual journey? Let's see what we can uncover. Let's begin here with the cause here in verse 38. We are told here at the very beginning that uh, Elisha the prophet has arrived from Gilgal to visit with what we might call seminary students uh, who are in the midst of a serious crisis. Now, Gilgal is a significant city, not a major city in terms of the biblical narrative, but significant nonetheless. It was near Gilgal that Elisha witnessed his mentor, Elijah, ascend into heaven. Uh, it was located near the Jordan River and will presumably be the site of a story we've looked at in the past. Uh, that is the story where Elisha miraculously causes an iron axe head to float. Um, but again, there's some presupposition there because that's in chapter 6. This is in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. But you'll notice there right away that he's coming from Gilgal. There was a famine in the land. Now, throughout Scripture, famine is often, though not always, associated with the judgment of God. And no doubt we would expect to assume that here now Israel was living uh, in apostasy. King Jerem is on the throne. He was the son of King Ahab and Jezebel. And he, although he may, we could say he wasn't as bad as Ahab, it's a matter of degrees. He was not a righteous king of the northern tribes. Let me give you this from chapter 3 of 2 Kings. In the 18th year, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, that will be on your test, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. He reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He clung to the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So clearly what we have here is, is a nation in apostasy. And under his leadership, King Jehoram's leadership, Israel experienced war, they increased in idolatry, and they broke many of their allies. His rule was chaotic and it ended up in battle. His death led to the end of the Ahab dynasty, thanks to the judgment of God. So we're not surprised to discover this little note that there is a famine in the land. This is what we would expect. Elijah led Israel through a three and a half year famine. Here we have under his successor yet another famine. And he goes in this famine from Gilgal to meet with the sons of of the prophets. Now, uh, you come across them off and on throughout the Bible, and the question is, who, who in the Sam Hills are they? A couple of things to note here. First, this term uh, is primarily found in First and Second Kings um, and is related exclusively to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, this, this specific term, the school of the prophets or sons of the prophets. However, this seminary, again, if we could use that term, uh, predates them 
and continued after them. It just goes by different terms. For example, in Saul and Samuel's day, the term is the band of prophets. They were really good at music, I guess. In Amos chapter 7, uh, he, he claims not to be a son of a prophet. You may be familiar with that passage. And that sounds like he's saying, I did not go to seminary. So I'm not one of the sons of the prophets. And often we read that as he's a descendant of one. And that could be a possible interpretation. But it could very possibly he's referencing this school. There are various branches of the seminary, much like the Southern Baptist Convention has series, uh, various branches. Southeastern, Southern, Southwestern, Golden Gate, and, 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 and Midwestern. Uh, you'll see them in, in, in Beth. You'll see them in Jericho. You'll see them in Gilgal. We see it here. Well, then there's also one in Ephraim. But above them was a master prophet. We get this from 2 Kings 2, uh, verses 3 to 5. And what we see then in 1 in, in Kings is that Elijah and Elisha seem to have been the presidents, if you will, of these institutions. They were the chief of the prophets. And so what they would then have are these disciples under them, very New Testament model that you get here. Uh, and so as he leads these, 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 these school of the prophets, the goal is, is to train them in this ministry, then to send them out throughout Israel. Um, and so um, when the prophet dies, uh, the main prophet dies, his successor would take over. And that's the story of Elijah passing the mantle down to Elisha. And finally, we should know that they probably lived in some sort of monastic community or monastic-like community. Uh, they erected buildings. You get that in chapter 6. Uh, they shared a common table. We get that actually here in chapter 4. And some were even married. So, so it's, it's just an interesting thing. We, we don't get a lot of details about it in the Bible, but it does show up nonetheless. But the problem is that, that even though they were training to lead Israel back to the proper worship of the Lord, they are suffering under God's judgment. It's interesting, a little detail, isn't it? Because although the judgment may not be directed towards them specifically, due to the uh, universal nature of this famine, they still suffer under the consequences of this judgment. Something worth uh, uh, considering nonetheless. nonetheless. So what they're doing is, is they are crying out to their mentor, the main prophet, for help. Because here they are, students wanting to serve Jesus, and they are starving, like the rest of Israel. And so you see there that in verse 38, uh, Elisha comes up with a plan. Set on a large pot right, and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. Now, when he arrives... Uh, this is his commandment to boil stew. And the question for the reader is, where, are he, where is he going to get the ingredients? That's the very nature of a famine. I mean, right now what he's got is water. <laughs> he's just going to heat it up. There's dinner. Um, he needs ingredients here. And so the, the cause of all of this is given in verse 38. The combination is given to us in verse 39. You see it there that one of the students goes out to the field to pick herbs, right? He's, he's going to put some goodies in it. This is going to be a, a vegetable soup, if you will. And so he's got to go out into the woods and, and seek this out. Now, we should note here that this student is well-meaning. Uh, he did not wake up that morning and say, when Elisha gets here, I'm going to poison the dude. Rather, he is waiting for Elisha to arrive. Elisha gives his instructions. While everyone else is getting the stew ready, he goes out into the woods to fetch herbs. Now, he's not done anything wrong here. He's just doing the best he can to serve uh, the other students. Now, uh, you need to know, I, I am not a cooking expert. I've shared this before. I enjoy cooking. I, I really do. I'm a task-oriented person. If you can give me something to do that keeps me busy, and even better, gets other people to leave me alone, I am in my zone. I am in my zone. 
uh, for, for dad's uh, retirement thing yesterday, uh, uh, th- there was a little backdrop and uh, my wife was just, uh, uh, you, know, ner- you know, trying to get everything ready and it needed to be ironed. And, and, and she, she you know, uh, well, there's jokes here, but she'll say, well, I got to do this, this, and this, and this. And what I'll do is I'll pick my favorite of those and help her. And I'll say, well, I'll iron the backdrop. That means I get to uh, uh, do a task and be left alone because I'm holding something hot right, and dangerous. So, so the whole family leave me alone. Uh, so, so I can pop in the tunes or whatever it is I want to do and I just, just go at it. Man, I love that. I love that. So I do enjoy cooking. My problem is I'm not a natural at it. And I think some of y'all know what I mean by that. Like when my wife cooks, she's a natural at it. Um, if you were to ask her, what exactly is your plan? How do you do this? And, and the answer is she, she, she's just making it up. You know, uh, she won the chili thing a few weeks ago with the youth. Uh, she told me she went and got everything, didn't write anything down. And then she goes, you know what? I got to really think about how I used to do this. And she just did it. She just did it. I mean, no recipe. She's winging it. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I can make chili. It's not that hard. And like, and that's sort of my point. I've got to Google this thing. I've got to find a good recipe, and I will follow it to a T. One of the favorite dishes I make, if you want to call it a dish, is fried taters. Don't laugh. It's fried taters. The problem is, is I never know how much spice I'm actually putting on the taters. Right? I like to put Cajun seasoning on it. Judge me if you want. I love it. I just absolutely love it. It's good stuff. And, and sometimes it's too spicy. Sometimes it's not spicy enough. And, and we just can't get Goldilocks there. And it's because I'm making it up. I'm just not a natural at it. Uh, my mother all the time, if I, if I call her and say, how do you make X? And she'll have to sit there like, I don't know. I just put it all together, put it in the, in the oven, and it's, it's gone, right? Or it's taken care of. Uh, well, well I, I, am, I am one that, that I'm not natural at this. And so uh, this student, he, he wisely grabs what food and spices he can find and throws in the stew. That... that you know, maybe he's a natural at this sort of stuff. His problem isn't that he doesn't know what to put in it, despite not having a recipe. His problem is, is that he chooses the wrong ones to put in there. He naively is unaware that what he's done is chosen things that are actually poisonous. Tony Evans is actually quite helpful in his sermon on, on this text, where he, he looks at this word wild gourds, and he describes it, this wild gourd, as basically being like a cucumber. A wild gourd, he says, is a cucumber with poisonous pulp so that the poison is on the inside, while on the outside you think you're getting something like a cucumber. So this guy, he, he, because it's, it grows wild, uh, right? And I wouldn't recommend like a wild onion or something like that. Um, and so he, he goes and he, he, he grabs it thinking he's getting one thing without realizing that what is in uh, this, 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 this food is something poisonous. Um, now, without knowing it, um, he is risking the death of his peers. Uh, we think we know what exactly uh, has been grabbed here. In fact, you, you notice there in verse 39, not knowing what they were. The guy is ignorant of, of, of what he's doing. Um, but but we, we do know that this, this could potentially kill people. If consumed in large amount doses, it is a miserable way to die. A miserable way to die. Now, many could survive this, but it does have the potential of being deadly. So that leads thirdly to the caution there in verse 40. Not realizing it, the cooks are stirring the stew and begin to distribute it, right? I mean, you read this, you just want to shout through the pages, uh, you know, uh, don't, don't do this, you know, uh, start over, uh, get better ingredients, don't shop at that grocery store ever again, that sort of stuff. Um, and 
Um, and so as they start eating the food, uh, they start to realize something is off. Now, we don't get any details about this, but their immediate reaction when they realize that this is a dangerous meal, um, they cry out to Elisha, their mentor, and they warn him. They caution him. Don't eat this. There is death in the pot. If you eat this, it could kill you. So the last thing we want is for, for you to suffer in this way. Now, I want you to notice here what they are uh, requesting is for people not to eat. It's right in the middle of a famine. They're eating because they are starving. And upon eating, they discover that, that this is actually more dangerous to them. To eat this is more dangerous than for them to continue to go without food. This is a real crisis. And so they ask Elisha not to eat. And this leads finally, verse 41, with the cure. Um, when Elisha arrived, uh, there, of course, was a serious situation of the famine. And now what we have is a more serious uh, crisis, and that is that they will die not by death, or not by starvation, but by poisoning. And, and so he, he is asked, you know, what, what should we do? You know, you know, should we just throw this out? And then what do we do? We're, we're still hungry. And his answer is to bring flour, throw it into the pot, and it'll be okay. Now, I have no idea how flour fixes that problem. I don't. Uh, there are a lot of preachers who make things up. Maybe you know something I don't. But at no point did my grandmother, if we ever had an upset stomach, recommend flour. They might recommend uh, a Sprite or something like that. Never flour. And so clearly, this is a miraculous event. Flyer becomes the means of, of saving lives and to make the food, to purify the food so that it can be uh, consumed. Now, we need to pause here and ask ourselves, being the case, what in the world is this doing in the Bible? It's a weird story, isn't it? It's not even a good story. It's a story where a guy shows up for family dinner Use, the, use expired ingredients. He comes up with a way to make the food healthy. They eat, and everyone returned back home in the evening. I mean, that's it. It's, it's not even a good story. But it's here in the Bible. Of all the things God could have given us, particularly about the history of Israel and the prophets, this is numbered among them. What, what, what do we do with this? Well, one of my biggest complaints about modern preaching, and this is sort of preaching around forever, but modern preaching seems to be particularly guilty of this, is to moralize the Bible. So what you'll find, if you ever want to know if a preacher doesn't know what the text means, you'll discover he goes a bit wild with the application. Let me give you an example of this. I've heard this from, from people I respect, um, their treatment of this. Well, for one, there's two things. One, a lot of people don't know what to do with it. I have two commentaries on the book of 2 Kings, and both of them give you a paragraph roughly the length of the text itself. And that is unusual in commentaries. Each verse, you know, you get two or three pages. And this one, you, you get a paragraph on this paragraph. And they don't say anything, just summarizes the story. And, and then so, so, you know, you maybe listen to a good preacher. How did he handle this text? What application and interpretation did he get? And what you get is a lot of moralizing. Let me give you an example. Uh, from this text, you can say, this young man goes into the wilderness. And this is like 
when you go into the world, be careful that you don't bring back poison. Well, okay, I hope you don't go out into the world and bring back poison. But you mean to tell me God put that, uh, this story here so that we can get that application in the 21st century? I'm not sure that's what this is really all about. Um, we may try typology and allegory and whatnot, but, but the question is, what do we do with this? The answer is always to get us to Jesus, but, but what do we do with this? Well, uh, I, what stuck out to me is I think I've read the story over and over again. You tell me if I'm wrong, and I'm still discovering sort of the ins and outs of this passage. I've read, like I was going through this, like, man, this story sounds familiar. Is it too simple to say that there are three parts of this narrative, okay? There is a dire situation, there is a crisis, then there is deliverance. Is that an adequate summary of this narrative? The dire situation, famine, judgment. The crisis is that despite that situation, now what you have is a greater crisis in the sense that you have uh, people could die. You know, they, they were already dying from the famine, starvation, but now, now th th this could be it. They, they could die of something quite serious. And by the end of the story, it ends with the man of God, the instrument of God, um, uh, delivering people from that crisis. Right? I think that's a fair summary of the narrative. Now, what you'll find is in the story of Elisha, we could do this with Elijah as well, but we'll just limit it for now to the story of Elisha. This story is told over and over and over again. Can I give you a few examples? Sure, why not? We, we still got 20 minutes. Why not take them? Uh, chapter 2. Go back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 19. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. You see the similarities? Both have to do with food or water, right? Very similar. But also you see the same pattern. You have a situation, right? Israel's under, you know, apostasy. You have a crisis, right? They, they can't consume the water. And then there is the deliverance from that crisis. To the point that says that to this day, this water's fine, thanks to Elisha. Okay? Uh, go to chapter 4. Chapter 4. We're going to see a similar story. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, there's that phrase again, cried to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. Notice there that the dire situation is death. The crisis is creditors to a widow. Very serious situation, particularly for widows at this time. Elijah said to her, verse 2, oh, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. He said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few. Then go in, shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. He said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. Same story. Little nuances that are different, of course, but in terms of the general arc, it's the same story. 
you, you have a dire situation, husband's died, crisis, you have creditors, the deliverer comes, and through this act of multiplying oil, she's able to sell those vessels to pay off her debts. Same story. Okay. Well, go farther down in chapter 4. Uh, actually, where we, where we left off, chapter 4, verse 42. So we left off verse 41. Then we, we could look at verse 42. Now, we could look actually a whole chapter, chapter 4. The story is repeated about three or four times. But we'll just look at verse 42. A man uh, came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ear of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give them to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Now, what's, what's the situation? Famine, right? All that still continues from verse 38. It's famine. What's the, what's the crisis? Well, there isn't enough food to go around. What's the solution? The deliverer comes. He provides food for everybody. You see in the pattern? And all these seem to have to do with food and water, stuff that you have to have to, to survive. Let's look at one more from Elisha. Why not? My favorite story of Elisha, chapter 6. We've looked at it, and I've already referenced it once or twice. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets, there they are again, said to Elisha, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. So their, their school is too small. That's a good problem to have. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he said, Go. One of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. He said, I will go. So he, he, he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe, the word there is iron, uh, axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So iron was very expensive this time, so he borrows it, and now, uh, now that it's sunk, so you have the dire situation, um, you know, that, that there isn't enough room, where, you know, it's a famine, all that sort of stuff. And the crisis is this student is about to be made a slave because he, he can't afford to replace the axe. Iron is very expensive. Not easy, easy thing to come across. Then verse 6, the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. See deliverance. Same story. Same story. Now this one doesn't involve food. Involves an axe. Now, what if I told you this story is found throughout the Bible? I'll give you an example. I'll put it up on the screen. Um, it's in uh, Exodus chapter 15. When they came to uh, uh, Mara, which means bitter, it's the bitter water of Mara, uh, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was Mara. It was bitter. Play on words there. Therefore, it was named Mara. Uh, okay, I get the point. Move on. Verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. A couple things noted here. One, what's the dire situation? It is that they are thirsty in the wilderness. There's no water. And the crisis is they find water, but it's too bitter, making their, their thirst worse. The solution is you, you take a log, a branch, the, the, uh, even a tree. It's the same word in the Hebrew for all. And you throw it in there, and somehow, some way, it becomes sweet. You'll notice the, the similarities between what Moses does here in Exodus 15 and then what Elisha did with the story of the floating axe head. In both situations, a branch, a tree, a limb, a stick, something that was thrown into the water to, to, to deliver uh, the, the, the people involved with the crisis. So even there, we have clear parallels. Now, we could keep doing this all day long, and I would love to do that because I'm a nerd. But can I just, in passing, mention a few? David and Goliath. You have a dire situation. You're at war with the Philistines. Crisis. Goliath comes out, and he's a giant. No one wants to face him. To deliver comes, and all he's got is a little slingshot. 
or consider uh, Jonah and the sea monster. What's the dire situation? Is you have a prophet who doesn't want to go do his job. Crisis comes in his pursuit to run away from the Lord. And, and he thinks he will deliver them by himself laying his life down. He goes into the abyss, place of death, Sheol, he says. But in that story, the, the, the one who delivers is actually delivered through the sea monster. Daniel in the lion's den. What's the dire situation? Well, don't pray. What's the crisis? Daniel prayed, gets thrown in the lion's den. What's the deliverer? Angel Lord comes and shuts their mouths. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's the dire situation? Uh, bow down to this false idol. What's the crisis? Uh, you're going to go uh, hang out with the flames. What's the deliverer? A fourth uh, individual, a divine being, the angel Lord, is sitting right there to deliver them. What about the whole book of Judges that we've, we're, we're in the middle of now? Othniel, that we looked at Wednesday. What's the story? Judah is in a crisis, a dire situation. Uh, for one, their disobedience, the crisis is, is that uh, the dude from uh, Aram comes down and uh, what happens? The deliverer is raised up in a form of Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Samson, and the rest. You see this, right? It's the same story over and over and over again. You can come up with another dozen yourself. But these stories, particularly the one that's before us now in chapter 4, is particularly noteworthy. Look at that story again. Does this sound familiar? It should. We can turn to the New Testament stories of Jesus, and it's retold over and over again. Let me give you a few, and then I want to give you the chief one. The feeding of the 5,000 to 4,000 is paralleled of the story of Elisha we actually looked at. Remember that Elisha feeds a multitude, starting in verse 42, with a little boy's lunch. It's the same story. But now it's Jesus doing it. So in Matthew, you get the feeding of 5,000, followed in the next chapter, feeding of the 4,000. What about the calming of the storm? You have a dire situation. It's dark. There's a storm. It's a crisis. They're all going to die. What happens? Well, on two occasions, one, they wake Jesus up and he says, man, what are you guys whining about? I got this. Yo, stop. The other is, is, is the crisis is a ghost is coming to them. Only to discover that that ghost is their deliverer who calms the storm. The main one I want you to see here is the turning the water into wine. We've already seen that here, right? Take, for example, when, when Elisha, uh, for the widow who has the debt, the creditors, what does he do? Is, is he says, okay, I want you to go find all the vessels you can, take your oil, and keep filling them up until you run out of vessels. The story of the water in the wine is essentially the same. Take all your vessels, and I want you to fill them up with water and serve them to everyone. What you're going to find is it's wine. It is enough to get us through the wedding. Same story. But we see the parallels with the turn the water into wine even, even here. Because you have the dire situation, wedding without, you know, the wedding going on. You, you have the crisis, that is, that the, you've run out of wine, which is a serious uh, cultural crisis at this time. And the solution is that you create, uh, the miracle is you create out of something that isn't there. There may be the means of something. For, for, for Elisha, flour is the means of deliverance, but it's still a miraculous act. For Jesus, the water is the means. But the reason he has them fill it up all the way to the brim is so that no one can say, sure, it's amazing, but he only filled it halfway, the rest of it's pure wine. No, by filling it all the way up, there is no natural explanation. So I, I do think that, that the gospel writers particularly seem to love Elisha the prophet. But if there's, there's, there's another example we can look at, 
That, of course, is the cross. There we have a dire situation. The Messiah is rejected by his own people. What's the crisis? The Messiah is crucified by the occupying power, the Romans. Where's the deliverer in that? It's not in his disciples. It's not in the system or the religion or the law. The answer, the deliverer, is the one who conquers the grave. Not even Rome can have victory over us now. Not even the religious elites have power over us now. Christ is risen from the dead. So what we see is this narrative pattern is common because they are microcosms of the broader narrative of Scripture. In each narrative, the means of deliverance does vary. Branches thrown in the water, flour put in a stew, jars filled with water, rebuking the storm, grabbing a sling and a few stones, and on and on it goes. But it is still the same story that you have a dire situation followed by crisis by which there is no, there seems to be no a means of deliverance until the one called by God, anointed by God, comes and deliver his people. We see types of these in Moses and David and, and, and Joshua and the judges and Elijah and Elisha and the others. But the chief deliverer we have is found in Christ because we are the ones in the crisis of sin. And what we need is a deliverer. We are sinners living in a fallen world. That's the dire situation. The crisis is that we continue to rebel against our maker. Despite all of that, Christ comes to deliver us from our sin. So I do think that although on the surface, this looks like a boring story about food poisoning. Yet, in reality, it is a reminder to the reader about grace. We don't need flour or, or in, in, in our stew. We don't need water in our jars. We don't need oil in our vessels. What we need is a savior for our hungry souls. Christ is ultimately at the center of this narrative who begs us all to come to eat of his body, to drink of his blood, and in him, we will have redemption. So as always, what we see here is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And that's good news. Well, let's pray, shall we? Our Father, I ask that you would help us in this regard.